Romans 6, 11 through 14. Please follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. It says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we thank you for this text. We ask that you would help us as we study this word, that you would, that you would speak to us through your word. Shape us and mold us. God, I pray that you would help me to preach and speak your truth, not merely my own ideas. You would open our hearts to receive it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach to you this morning on the theme of the good life. The good life. Does anybody want to live a good life? Laura Young was shopping at a Goodwill in Texas. And she was hoping to find something old, maybe an old piece of art. What she didn't expect to find was a centuries-old relic from the Roman Empire. Sitting underneath the table on the floor, she saw a marble bust. You know that little statue that's just like a head and part of the neck and shoulders? She picks it up. The price is $34.99. She purchases it. You know, it looks like one of these things that you would find in ancient Rome or in Greece, like an old Roman lord. She takes it to get tested by the specialists, the people that know how to do this kind of stuff. And what she discovers is that this is a 2,000-year-old relic from the Roman Empire. It was entitled Portrait of a Man. It was once owned by King Ludwig of Bavaria. And somehow, it ended up in Texas. I like to imagine that it was bought and sold at garage sales for $5. Somebody ended up donating this to Goodwill. And what they did not realize was that the thing that they treated as common was priceless. The thing that they bought and sold for a couple dollars was of infinite worth. The thing that they treated as cheap and just stuck it on, under, on the floor underneath the table was of infinite value. Listen, to be holy 
is to be set apart. It is to be no longer common. It is to be of infinite worth. It is to be markedly different. Yet, so often, we treat ourselves and our bodies as if we are common. As if we are of no real value. I want us to reimagine, re-understand, and rediscover holiness this morning. Not simply as some kind of uh, uh, strict, uh, uh, dull, uh, restricted kind of life. But I want us to understand of holiness as recognizing the worth and the value that my body actually is, that my mind actually is, that you actually are, and recognizing that we are to be set apart. C.S. Lewis once said, people who think that holiness is dull know very little. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. You see, church, Satan wants us to make too little of holiness and too much of sin. The good life so often is seen in society as just simply pursuing our sinful passions, pursuing every selfish desire, living for one's own glory. And so we've got to re-understand and reimagine and rethink what the good life actually is. You see, it's only after you interacted with that old man who you found to be quite dull that you realized that that man was Albert Einstein. You see, you, never, you, you, you didn't linger long enough in his presence to understand how beautiful and wonderful and valuable this man actually is. You see, we don't linger long enough in the presence of the holy to understand how beautiful and wonderful and delightful holiness actually is. For holiness is indeed the good life. Holiness is actually the way that we are wired to live. It is life itself. Now I know that you want to use your life in a way that matters. And I do too. Like, I don't want to live my whole life and then look back at wasted time and, and, and uh, burned bridges and lost loved and, uh, loves and fizzled friendships uh, and, and, and a life that was just simply lived for vain passions. The problem for all of us is this, and this is why we're not holy, all right? It's because sin has its own passions. Sin has its own desires, and these passions and desires are demanding that we, our bodies, the members of our body, obey the passions and the desires of sin. And so then as a result, we look as if we're cheap. Sin makes us look as if we are worthless when that is not our reality. 
for those of us that are Christians. Verses 1 through 10 of Romans, we are united with Christ. To continue to live according to the desires and passions of sin would be, like to be, uh, would be similar to being married to the most wonderful spouse and you just constantly cheat on him or her, never enjoying the oneness of your marriage. Now, in the gospel, God invites us to something more. In the gospel, God invites us to actually live the good life, to re-understand what holiness is and to recognize that we can live a life that matters. And so, we're looking at four verses today, verses 11 through 14 of Romans chapter 6. And I want to invite you, my friends, to walk with me through these verses and let us see what it looks like to live the good life. Are you with me? Three things from these verses that I want to draw from that show us what it looks like to live the good life. Number one, know who you are. Number two, how we live. And number three, what's your motivation? Those are my three points. Simple message today for very practical verses. Number one, who we are. Who we are. Look at verse 11. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. You see where he says so right there. If you're reading through the Bible and you get to verse 11 and, and you see a so, that should tell you that he's connecting the verses that came before with the verses that are coming after, all right? So is a linking word. So in verses 1 through 10, which we studied last week, if you weren't here, just find the sermon online, you can catch up. In verses 1 through 10, what we discovered is that we are in union with Christ, do you remember last week how in verse 1, Paul started with a question? He says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Meaning, we're saved by grace. We're saved 100% by the grace of God, not by the things that we do. So, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, certainly not. What's interesting in verses 1 through 10 is that he doesn't say, hey, let me tell you why Christians don't take advantage of grace and continue in sin. He doesn't say it's because they have more grit and determination and willpower. What he actually says is that they are in an entirely different realm. They have been transferred to a different dimension. They are no longer in sin, but Christians are in union with Christ. That's why they don't take advantage of God's grace and continue in sin. So that's verses 1 through 10, all right? Verse 11, so what does that mean? So how does being united with Christ help us to live a holy life? That's what Paul's doing in these next couple verses. And I find them to be very practical, and I hope you do too. So he says this, number one, know who you are. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Somebody say, consider yourselves. Consider yourselves. Does he mean by this, dupe yourself? Like lie to yourself? Meaning uh, you're not really dead to sin, but just pretend like you're dead to sin? As if, uh, if, if I were to tell my, my 10-year-old son going into the boxing ring, uh, hey, consider yourself Floyd Mayweather and win this fight. And then he gets into the ring and he realizes he's not really Money Mayweather. But consider yourself that way. Dupe yourself into believing that you've got this. You see, a lot of times I think that's the way we think of our own selves. Like, we don't really think of ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. And so we read this and we, we, we almost hear Paul saying, just dupe yourself, you know, give yourself a little extra motivation. But if we're going to be honest, sometimes the way it feels is that we are alive to sin and dead to God in Christ. Look, I've got good news for you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is not telling us to have a fiction, a fictional kind of motivation. But Paul is actually saying, this is, how do we know this? Why do I, first of all, it's because this is God's Word. And God doesn't require of us what He won't provide as true. So Paul, being an apostle of God, speaking for God, writing this, we believe this to, is to be the Scriptures, inerrant, inspired by God. And so God is saying through Paul, I want you to consider yourself dead to sin. And God doesn't require us to lie to ourselves about who we are. Are you with me? Also, as one commentator put it, this is psychologically true. Meaning, psychologically how we think of ourselves affects the way that we act. Meaning, meaning if you think of yourself as a nice person, you are generally going to act like a nice person. If you think of yourself as an angry person, you are generally going to act as an angry person. And so this is not only true of us, but it's also psychologically helpful for us. Meaning if you consider yourself, you think of yourself as to the reality of who you actually are in Christ, guess what? You're more than likely going to start acting like that. You're going to act like you're dead to sin, more so, and alive to God. But even more than just simply, you know, psychological motivation, it, it, it's because this is true. You know, it's who we are. We have new motivations. We have new desires being united with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit who has made us alive unto God. Church, you can amplify your sin or you can amplify your Savior. You can look at your sin or you can look at your Savior. Meaning you could crumble under the magnitude of your sin 
or you could boast in the magnitude of your Savior. And what God is telling us to do is to boast in our Savior, to look to the Savior, to find our identity in our Savior, and to consider yourself dead to sin and alive unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's who we are. Secondly, how we live. Verse 12 through 13 in this passage is really some of the most down-to-earth instructions in the entire book of Romans. We have two prohibitions right here and one command. Look at verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is the very definition of slavery. To, to, to imagine a slave driver requiring a slave to obey his passions. Think of uh, the, the, the Hebrews when they were in Egypt. By the time we get into the book of Exodus, we see that there was a new king that had arrived in Egypt, and, and he did not know Joseph, and he dealt shrewdly, we're told, with the Hebrews. And the problem was this Pharaoh's passions, this king's desires. We see that he, in Exodus, desired to curb the population of the Hebrews, and so he required the, the murder of their infants. We see that he desired to, uh, to, to bring harm upon them through requiring the same quota of bricks but reducing the supplies. We see that in the king's passions, he, uh, he desired to abuse the people for not being able to make the same number of bricks with limited and subpar materials. Exodus tells us that the king was ruthless, hard, cruel, and he made their lives bitter. You see, the problem with the Hebrews uh, living in Egypt wasn't just the land. It wasn't just Egypt that was the problem. It was the passions of the slave driver. Sin is, in Romans, personified as our slave driver. Sin is personified as having passions and desires. And the problem with sin then is that our bodies in Adam, in our flesh, are under the dominion of sin. And so therefore our bodies obey sin's passions and desires. So the first prohibition we have here is don't let sin act like it owns you. This is helpful, isn't it? It's actually helpful. I find it to be super practical to personify sin and recognize that's not who I am anymore. Don't let sin own you. Well, what does this mean practically? Second prohibition. Don't let sin determine what you do with your body. Verse 13. He says, do not present 
your members, he's here referring to your, the members of your body, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, Paul isn't saying, listen, he's not saying that sin is dead. See, sin is still very much alive. Sin is still very much a thing. Christians are still tempted with sin all the time. And Christians at time, myself included, sin. Fall under the temptations of sin and submit our bodies, our members of our body for uh, uh, unrighteous purposes. The practical outworking of union with Christ is this. You're freed from the dominion of sin. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to keep submitting your body to sin. And so he's saying struggle against it. Fight against it. Like every day, try to, in every moment of every, every minute of every moment, uh, you know, every second of every minute of all of the moments of your month. How about that? Um, try to war against sin and not submit the members of our body to sinful desires and, and, and passions. It's really that simple. Your eyes. You know, sin wants us to use our eyes to desire sin's passions. Your feet, where you go, your legs, where your legs take you. Your mouth, what comes out of it, the tongue. Your brain, your mind, everything that your body is made of. What he's saying is this, is, is that we are now in Christ, united with Christ. We are freed from the dominion of sin, and we are free to make a decision now with how we use the members of our body. And God is saying that there is going to be a continual urge to sin, a temptation to sin, but to fight against that. Now, one thing that's good to note here is that he's not saying that the body itself is sinful. He's not saying the body itself is bad. As a matter of fact, the story of the Bible begins with the reality that the body is good. God created your body, and God called his creation good. And so what we see then is that our bodies are perverted, uh, uh, are used in a perverted fashion. They're used to serve the wrong master. And then, we, therefore, we display our sin through our bodies. And we're called to do something different. So, what are we called to? Well, continue in verse 13. What we see is just the opposite. In verse 13, he says, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now think about how wonderful this is, from death to life. Somebody say, from death to life. How wonderful is this? Listen, we in, in, in society, we aren't given very many good options. Meaning, I think a lot of people, at least in America, have some concept of sin. There's some sense of like, you know, bad things, things that I don't want to do, things that I don't want to define my life. 
You know, probably everybody in this room, I would imagine, you have some concept of sin, uh, which is maybe why you're here, because there's a sense in which you know that life ought to be lived for something better, and I don't want to waste my life with these things. But the problem is, is, is that one option that we have is what I'll just simply call religion. Or maybe I should call it bad religion. Religion is motivated and driven by just simply giving you a bunch of rules. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's law. Motivated by guilt. Motivated by fear. If you want to be right with God, here's a, a, a whole long list of rules. If you want God's love, if you want to be accepted by God, you must learn to love God through doing all of these things. But the problem is that the law never saves. And we're going to get to this. I'm getting ahead in the text a little bit. The law doesn't save us. Rules don't save us. They don't deliver us. And so bad religion leaves us with what? It leaves us with sin because we can never do enough, and it leaves us with death. And so then, therefore, I think a lot of people are burned out by religion and they look to the world for advice. How do I live a better life? And what does the world tell us? The most common advice today in the world is do what you want, live according to your passions. Figure out who you kind of think you are internally and then just go do that. Have sex with who you want to have sex with. Do what you want to do. Cut off whoever you want to cut off. And not only that, but if you don't live according to your passions, you will die. Meaning you'll die to your true self. You'll die to who you really are. And my point is simply this is that we got sin and death on both sides. But the gospel is so different. The gospel is so different. The gospel says you have been transferred into an entirely different realm. Something completely different has happened, and you have been taken from sin, and you have been placed by God's grace, listen to this, into Christ, verses 1 through 10. An entirely different dimension. And therefore, you are no longer a slave to sin. Let me put it like this. Christians, as Christians, there are, there are two things of utmost importance. Number one, we have to rightly know what God has done. And number two, we have to rightly know what we are to do. And if we get these things mixed up in any way, we're going to fall into a ditch on both sides. So, for example, if we mix up what God has done with what we do, and we think that we are supposed to do what God has done, uh, let me try to explain this to you. So, we believe, if we believe that we must follow the law in order to be saved, if we believe that we must do all of these good things in order to be saved, live a moral life, live an upright life in order to be delivered from our sins, then what we're, what we're, what we're saying is, is that I am to do 
what only God can do. You see, God, what, what has God done? What has He done? God in Christ has done it. He's delivered us from our sins. He saved us by His grace, not by works. That's God's job, not yours, not mine. Though you are a sinner, Christ became sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Though you deserve the judgment of God, Christ on the cross stood in your place and He took the judgment of God that I deserve so that we don't have to deal with it. Though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, three days later God rolled the stone away and Christ got up from the dead so that you might live. What has God done? God has saved us by His grace. And what are we to do? We are to now live in the light of that, freed from sin, and to walk in obedience. And that actually is, listen, that actually is our responsibility. See, the, so here's the ditch on the other side. Ditch on one side, we could call, the, call that the ditch of legalism. The ditch on the other side would be the ditch of licentiousness. Let me explain what that is. That is to say that I'm to do nothing. That God has saved me by His grace. To that we all say amen. Everybody say amen. amen. And now that I'm saved, I can do what I want to do. Because I'm saved by grace. Right? No, sir? I mean, doesn't that make sense? If God wants to... Uh, you know, if God wants me to live a holy life, maybe he'll change my desires and kind of like by osmosis, I'll sort of somehow change. I don't know how. I ain't going to work. I ain't going to try. I'm not going to struggle. And so we just continue in sin. Well, this is mixing up what God has done and what we are called to do. God, what, what does God do? He, he brings us into life. He wakes us up from the dead. He saves us, not conditionally, not temporarily, like forever and ever and ever. You are saved. All right? The, the day that you trust in Jesus, you are just as saved as Billy Graham, who's in heaven with God. All right? But we are to now walk out that salvation, to live in light of our salvation, to actually struggle, to become more like Jesus, to look like we are, to shine for Christ. That's what we are called to do. That is our responsibility. Roger was 12 years old when his parents died from a drug overdose. And he was adopted into a family. And this father and mother and family, they, they raised Roger as if he was their own. And there was a lot of behavioral, behavioral issues with Roger. He would often scream and fight. And they would say, Roger, you know, you, you don't have to scream like that. 
You don't need to fight to get what you want. We're not, we don't fight in this house. We don't fight in this family. We don't steal. We don't take things. We don't hit. We don't harm. Roger, now being part of this family, had a lot to change to grow into the likeness of living in his new family. However, question, question, did Roger have to make those changes in order to become part of the family? No. You see, becoming part of the family, adopted into it, the securities of the family, the promises of the family was 100% by grace, father and mother. But now that Roger was part of the family, he had to work hard. He had to learn. He had to understand. And there was change that was to come. But he's motivated by what? And Roger did change, by the way. What was he motivated by? Grace and love. You see the difference there. Does anybody know that God doesn't require you or did not require you to change in order to adopt you into his family. But God adopted you into his family purely by his grace. And now that we're part of the family, it's our responsibility to appropriate that family name and to realize our union with God in Christ and to live as the people we are. Are you with me? No other passage in the Bible, I don't think, brings together what God has done and what we are to do, quite like Romans 6. What God has done, justification, He's made us right, He declared us to be right, He declared us to be righteous, and now what we must do, sanctification, to grow and become who we are in Christ, by God's help, by God's grace. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now that you're united with Christ, sin is out of character for the believer. Sin doesn't fit the Christian. Sin is not a match for the believer. Sin is incompatible with the believer's life. So what then are we to do? Verse 13 continues with a command. Look at verse 13 again. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Present your members, meaning the, your body members, to God as instruments for righteousness. So practical. What does sanctification look like? What does it look like to grow in our obedience? It's simple. Again, every day we have decisions to make how to use our hands, feet, eyes, mouth, brain, etc. You can use your hands to harm or to help. You can use your fingers, fellas, to look up vile images, or you can use your fingers to text an encouraging message to your wife. You understand what I'm saying. You can use your mouth to build up or to destroy. I could go on. 
But the point is that we are not victims of sin's desires anymore. We've been freed from that, and we have the choice as to how we use our hands. And so, practically speaking, every day, every minute of every day, try to think about this. Try to keep this in mind and use your hands and your feet and your eyes and your brain, your mind, your mouth, your tongue. Use all of it as instruments for righteousness. And yes, we'll fall. Yes, we screw up. And we delight in the grace of God. We rest in our justification. We are thankful that we're not saved by our sanctification, but we're saved because of our justification. And we say, I'm sorry, God, and I'm sorry, friends. And we keep it moving with joy, knowing that we can continue to learn how to use these instruments well. Are you with me? What we're doing here is we're changing the whole story. The value of our body had been forgotten. But we are, through Christ, reminded of the true story that our bodies are good, that are to be played well. God created it and called it for good. Sin had co-opted your body and used it as a tool of oppression and injustice and malice and lust and greed and fulfilling vain purposes. But the gospel is telling a new narrative, rewriting your story as to what your body is for. So how do we live the good life? Quick summary, number one, know who you are. Number two, know how we live. And number three, finally, and we're done, what's your motivation? Last verse, verse 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's a promise. That's not like... He doesn't say sin is going to have less dominion over you or you can try to wiggle your way out of sin's dominion. But this is a promise. He says, for the Christian, you are no longer in the grip of sin. What a wonderful promise that is. That's true of every Christian in this room, no matter how much temptation is calling your name. Sin will have no dominion over you. Why? He gives us the reason. Second part of verse 14, he says, since, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, it's always tough when the last verse I'm planning to preach comes with such a big, thick theological question. How in the world does not being under the law, but being under the grace, become the reason that we are freed from the dominion of sin? It almost seems counterintuitive. It almost seems like it would be more uh, according to our wisdom if he were to say, sin has no dominion over you. Why? Because you're under God's law. But that's not what he says. He says, here's the reason. It's because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, what he's not doing is saying that God's law doesn't matter. It does. God's moral law matters. That's why we're called to obedience. If God had no law, there would be no obedience, nothing to obey. God does have a law, and we are called to obey. So he's not saying that we don't have any law, any commands to follow. What's he saying? Well, we have to understand that law here is, Paul's referring to the system of the law. You're not under the system of law but rather you are under the system of grace. What does this mean? 
what we understand in the Bible, particularly through Paul's reading, uh, read this afternoon Galatians 3 and 4, if you get a chance. I almost was going to read both chapters for you as part of my sermon today, and I'm like, man, it'll just make my sermon that much longer. Just read it this afternoon, Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4. And what we discover in the New Testament by God's grace is that the law was never meant to be our Savior. As a matter of fact, the law, the system of God's law, is a tyrant without Christ. Not because the law is broken, but because we are broken. And if we misunderstand why God gave the law, and we think that, that law following is how we are delivered from sin, it's a tyrant, and we will never be free. We will always be remaining under the guilt and the condemnation and the curse of the law, because the law can't make us righteous. Only grace can do that. Only God's grace his declarative grace, and then even his sanctifying grace can make us righteous. To be then under grace is to say that you are part of the family, period. By grace, no matter what. But grace is also, in the New Testament, God's power. It comes to us with power and strength, by grace, listen, we have new desires. By grace, we have new affections. By grace, we have new passions. To be under the law, then, is just the opposite of all of that. It's to be under the scrutiny of a potential father who, if you obey right and sort of, you know, will bring you into the home condition on, on, based on the condition that you can become part of the family. You'll never become part of the family in that sense. You'll always be under the scrutiny of the law. You'll end up in rebellion, fear, and death. But Paul says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you again a slave to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, grace, church, it changes everything. It changes what we are. It changes who we are. And by grace, we are free to grow in our righteousness. You know, Paul, more than anybody, knew what it was like to have, quote-unquote, confidence in the flesh. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. In, in regards to the law, Paul was a defender of the law. He was zealous. He was faultless in rule following. And the law never had the power to save Paul. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he found his Savior. He found his hope. He found his righteousness. And Paul, in Philippians 3, he wrote this. He said, but whatever was gained to me, of all of this rule following, all of this system of the law, whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things as loss as compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness from the law, but that which was through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith. A few, few verses later in verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of for me. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? To truly pursue holiness is to know the love of God. To truly overcome the guilt of the law is to know the grace of God's love. Don't you know, church, it is not God's demands that lifts us up out of sin. It is God's love that lifts us up out of sin. I was sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. There's an old story of a violin that was dirty and dusty and unused and out of tune and unplayed. This violin was part of an estate sale, and the auctioneer got onto the stage, and he held up this broken old violin. Nobody was interested, clearly. The auctioneer began, he said, $50. Is there $50? It was silent. $40. $30. Is there $20? Would anybody give $20 for this violin? Then an old man stepped onto the stage with the auctioneer, and he took the violin from the auctioneer's hands, and he played a melody like no one had ever heard. Those who were watching said that there were tears in the eyes of the spectators. The man hands the violin back to the auctioneer. And the auctioneer says, is there $1,000 for this violin? I see one. Is there $2,000? I see two, $3,000. Oh, what was treated as common is of infinite value when it's rightly played in the hands of the Master. Church, don't you know that you are worth so much more than the cheap pleasures of sin? You allowed sin's pleasures to treat you as common, but you, have a, you are of infinite worth. Sin made a mockery of us, didn't it? Sin made us look worthless. The tune wasn't right. The music was bad. The melody was off. But by a miracle, which we call regeneration, God restored the instrument of my life. Amen. 
And he showed us what it looks like how to play the song. And we are invited to play the tune. And I love it because it is a good tune. It's a tune that lasts for all of eternity. It's the song of heaven. And it goes worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and might and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have found in this word. I pray, God, that you would help us to be people who use the members of our body as instruments of righteousness. God, as we sin, I pray that we would never believe that it is up to us to earn our salvation, but that we would always look to Christ and always find forgiveness, and that that forgiveness and love would always motivate us to live a holy life, the good life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.